This is the Breaking Labels Podcast, and I'm Rosanna Gill. Each episode, we'll discuss labels that have confined the stories of my guests at one point or another and their journeys to thrive beyond them. Some labels are external, and others we put on ourselves as limiting beliefs. But regardless of where the label comes from, we're here to break it because we were meant for so much more. Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking Labels podcast. I am Rosanna Gill. Uh, This is going to be a very interesting and different episode. If you have not read the show notes, then surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, I am talking with Joshua Shea, who is a porn addict. Actually, I should say a recovered um, or recovering porn addict. And um, he's written a few books about the topic. Uh, He actually also just recently did a TED Talk that is going to be dropping any day now about the topic of porn addiction. And when I, I heard about him, I thought, wow, that is something that needs to be talked about, that needs to be out in the open. And I was also curious because I've never talked about somebody or talked with somebody who openly admitted that they had ever had a porn addiction. And so I hope that this is an episode that you come into with an open mind because I certainly learned a lot from it and we'll be learning even more from it because this is actually one of what will be a two-part series um, because we got into his background, kind of what led into the addiction, when did everything come to a head, and then he um, ended up in jail. And that is where the beginning of his recovery began. So we got to that point, but we never actually got to the point of getting to talk about the counseling and the coaching that he does for other addicts or the coaching that he does with the partners of somebody with an addiction, a porn addiction called betrayal trauma. So that's going to be on the next episode. But meanwhile, you get to hear the backstory and Josh's story. Um, and all of my questions, some of which are kind of random, but that's the point. So, uh, normally I would say share this episode with someone, but I understand because of the content that may not be something that a lot of people are super eager to do. You may not want to post about this episode on your social media. That's fine, but I still hope in some way this message gets out to as many people as need to hear it. And if they want to listen to it on whatever platform you are, that's one option. We are on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and you can also listen to it on our website, thebreakinglabelspodcast.com. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. You know, it's one of those words that there are a couple words in this world, like pornography, pedophile, Hitler, that if you say out loud... People are afraid to say out loud, I think, because they feel like just saying the word out loud may be interpreted as some kind of endorsement. Like, mm-hmm. if I, I, I just say the word Hitler out loud, well, I was completely for Hitler. Well, that's not true. And, no. you know, and that, that's one of the problems with pornography in this world is that we can't say the word out loud in, in, in polite society and we're never going to deal with the ills of it 
or that it's causing if we can't just say pornography, 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 because uh, that, you know, nothing happens. It's not like saying Beetlejuice three times. Nothing happens when you say the word pornography. I'm excited because I have to say, to be honest, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because the same thing you said, people like pornography is one of those words that people get very hushed about. And there's obviously, I think some of that is tied to shame, whether it's because they have their own relationship with pornography or a family member, whatever it may be. But I just thought, oh, we're all raised being told only perverts look at that. Mm -hmm. Even though everybody looks at it. We're all a bunch of perverts because it's not about being a pervert. It's about expressing your sexuality. And there is there is not bad sexuality and good sexuality. There is healthy sexuality and unhealthy sexuality. Now, a lot of people will use the terms good and bad to mean healthy and, un- 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 and un- unhealthy. These early morning podcasts. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, I, uh, I think that, you know, one of the things that that makes me a little different out there is that, you know, I don't necessarily preach an anti-pornography stance because there are plenty of people who have proven that they can use it without ill effects. And since we're looking at anywhere, depending on what you want to believe, anywhere from 60 to 90% of men and women who are under 40 years old are looking at pornography at least once a month, if not more, um, we might as well just say, Hey, guess what? We all do it. And I don't know if it's the idea that we're perhaps looking at things that itch that scratch in the back of our head that we don't want to admit we have in polite company, or if it's the fact that, you know, looking at pornography almost always comes with masturbation and nobody wants to admit that they engage in that, despite the fact that even more people masturbate than look at porn, um, you know, it's, it's, it's these little things in society that I think that the uh, parents and grandparents of the 1950s and 30s and prior have kind of uh, hardwired into our families that we need to, uh, we need to get in there and do some electrician work and snap some of those wires. And, and I'm not saying, you know, let's embrace an unhealthy sexual world and let's embrace unhealthy uh, attitudes and unhealthy behaviors with pornography, because that's a lot mm-hmm. of what's actually been happening um, w- under our nose without us realizing what we need to be able to do is get to a place where we can have conversations about pornography, uh, which, which don't include, you know, describing graphically what you're looking at. Um, but that say it's okay, whatever, what you, what you happen to be looking at as long as it's legal. And uh, that, you know, if we can get to that point, we can then talk about the ills of pornography. We can talk about the problems with pornography because we're not going to solve the problems until we can talk about the subject. Mm-hmm. Until we go there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's, I, I will have in my coaching, you know, I will talk to a uh, guy who will, have no problem being super over the top graphic about what he looks at and you know what cool whatever i'm not going to judge you i've been there i've seen it all you know i was an addict for 20 plus years 
And, uh, and a lot of people, the first time a lot of these guys can actually talk about it openly, it's such a load off their shoulders mm-hmm. uh, that I'm not going to stop them from, you know, being super graphic. But then I'll also get the partner of a porn addict who, you know, is a very, you know, a woman in her early 60s who's a, you know, church going woman and, you know, and, and doesn't even want to say the word porn, but it's ravaged it's ravaging their marriage and has been for 40 years and you know what can she do and i have to handle that differently i try not to say the word porn then but i try to make get it get her a little more comfortable by the end of the conversation to talk about porn and then by the end of the conversation with that guy who's the addict i try to get him to a point where he could talk about it publicly but maybe not make so many references to dildos or whatever, you know, because a little less graphic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're not, you're in mixed company (laughs) sometimes. So, you know, we, we all, we all know what's under our clothes. So you don't have to tell us. It's funny because I just, from a previous life, it's, it's, I I worked um, in a sales organization and it was interesting when you would find like, let's say a new sales salesperson who had done really well. Right. And they're so excited to share their success. And you have some that really don't want to talk about themselves and it's hard to get anything out of them. And then you have some that are just so excited and so proud to be on a stage that it is just verbal vomit and yeah. the stuff that they say. And you're like, Oh, I don't Nope. That's mixed yeah. company. Nope. That's not. <laughs> we did, Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I know we're excited. So it's yeah. just coming out. It's just yeah. Yeah. coming out full force. And I know it's maybe, that's just the first thing that comes to my mind. Cause just, there's just so many times where I was just sitting and, you know, you're in your little professional clothes. Right. And it's like, you know, nine o'clock on a Tuesday and you're sitting there like, I can't believe this guy said that. That's, yeah. this is great. Yeah. This is better yeah. than a cup of coffee for me because. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. A well-placed F-bomb where it shouldn't be. Yes. Oh, those are my that, favorite. That, that, that makes, that wakes the room right up. Right. <laughs> and you might have a woman in her her 50s who this is like a second career and she's like oh god, oh god oh yeah you know. so yeah yeah absolutely you gotta you gotta play the room uh, <laughs> but 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 we need to get the room to a a common ground where that guy who was an addict for so many years if he gets into recovery and that woman, if she gets into betrayal trauma recovery, because mm-hmm. that's really what, what, what she's dealing with, to be able to get the both of them together to have a conversation um, and a conversation that they can both have comfortably, you know, I, I almost feel like that's part of my job as well is at, when I work with people to, uh, to help them be able to verbalize, you know, in mixed company, you know, Mm -hmm. where, you know, yes, yes, you know, Mrs. Smith, you, you, you can say the word pornography. And then, you know, hey, Jim, I need you to, uh, you know, tone down the amount of words for a man's penis you're using, (laughs) because I didn't even know some of those were words for it. I have you ever kept track of how many words for penis you've heard? Ah, well, here's a fun story. That's a red flag, probably. Okay. Uh, well, I'm glad you're excited. <laughs> I um, love stories, all kinds of stories. This is this isn't as good a story as it should be. I can I can give you some stories that will curl your toes later. But when <laughs> I was uh, when I was a kid, I loved stand up comedy. Or kid, teenager, I loved stand up comedy. I think it's one of the best storytelling vehicles because it's entertaining. It makes Mm -hmm. us laugh. Most, uh, most 
stand-up comedy is about finding commonalities between people, whether they realize that's why they're laughing or not. And I went and saw uh, George Carlin when I was young, shortly before oh. he stopped. Um, yeah, I got like second, third row seats here in Portland, Maine. It was it was great. And afterwards, I wanted to get a souvenir, and he had a poster. Now, if, I don't know if you know the story with George Carlin, where he was the only comedian um, who was ever like brought before Congress for obscenity, not because of him, but because he had the seven dirty words you can't say on TV or whatever. And some some uh, disc jockey played that comedy bit and i don't remember when this was probably the 70s but some disc jockey played that bit that he used to do on stage um on their radio on his radio show and he got in trouble with the fcc and it became a big deal and george carlin after that people started sending him uh double entendres and other words for for everything for different body sexual body parts for different sexual positions for just so so he created this giant poster which i don't remember it was called something like 10,542 impolite phrases that you're not allowed to say on the radio oh my god i want this poster it's, it's got like it's got like you know 50 different ways to say masturbation and you know a hundred different ways you know a hundred different words for man's genitalia a hundred different words for woman's genitalia uh and you know and just all all these which are just you know some of them are just absolutely hilarious and so so the amount of words i actually know for that probably is so much so larger than it should be for for any human that you know uh, when you know I, I i was i was developing my porn addiction even back then the the fact that i could give you so many synonyms for oh. for for human body sexual body parts and human sexual acts that you know that like i said that probably should have been a red flag that you know, <laughs> i never had to use the same word for penis twice in a month the foreshadowing that you didn't even know yeah. it was happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that's one of the funny things about, about addiction, both with my alcohol um, and my pornography is that yeah, I can look back now and go, wow, my life should just be called the red flag project because there were so many warning signs. Um, I remember when I was the other day, I was, I, I don't, I'm not on Facebook anymore mm-hmm. uh, because I don't care how you voted. And, <laughs> And uh, I uh, I was looking for a I still have an account um, that just sits there dormant. And I was looking for a photo that was about 10 years old. So I had to scroll back and I was going back and I was reading my entries for about uh, the last six months before I got into treatment. And, you know, I was I wasn't sleeping very much at all back then. I was sleeping about three hours a night and I just treated facebook between midnight and 2 a.m as my place to try out one-liners and and but so many of them have these little subtle messages in them like uh there there was one where it's like uh i'm chasing tequila with shots of gatorade what do i have to do to get you people to stage an intervention and I heard that, and it's like, okay, that's funny. I, I mean, I think no, no, it well, is. I mean, chasing chasing tequila with Gatorade's gross, but <laughs> um, 
um because I, I was out of red bull that was that was my drink of choice was red bull and tequila because <laughs> while you would to gatorade well while you would black out with red bull and tequila you still would have the energy to have really good stories uh t- told to you about what you did the next day so that that, that was my drink of choice but uh, and i look at that and it's like you know i don't think i really wanted an intervention but just writing that and I look back at where I was and I was mm-hmm. such a mess at that time, uh, both with the pornography and, and the alcohol. Um, and that was also the time, the point that I had stopped uh, taking my bipolar meds. So, oh. so I was really a total, total mess. Um, and, and some of these messages like, wow, there, there were red flags there. And then you look back, looking back through life um, just, tons of red flags and that's one thing that i try to tell people who uh you know one of the things i, was, I think i may be an addict uh, well, well number one if you're asking me you probably are mm-hmm. um you know you're you're not asking me if you're addicted to watching tv you're not addi- you're not asking me if you're addicted to traveling you're asking me if you're addicted to pornography and so you probably are yeah mm-hmm. um but i always tell people look back what are what makes you think you are what are the red mm-hmm. flags you know what is your story and and once i you know learned my story and had some of the things filled in i can now look back throughout my entire life and be like oh oh this was there was only one ending to this story um so to that to that vein, can you talk about like what your story was like? When did now in hindsight, when was the first red flag, and what how did it progress until it was a full blown addiction that well, you? Um, I mean, in I, I I guess I am very textbook when it comes to who a pornography addict is, mm, um, and okay. I, I I didn't I didn't know this until I read a study about three years ago actually by Patrick Carnes, who's kind of the godfather of uh, sex and porn addiction research. He was doing this long before anybody else was. And he did a, one of his first groundbreaking studies uh, said, and this is, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s, that's how far back it goes, um, that um, about, and these are not exact, you can look it up because, uh, or go on my Instagram page and I've got something on there, but uh, roughly uh, 70% of men who are uh, porn or sex addicts have experienced um, physical abuse um, as, as really? early, early in life. Yes, 70%. 80% have experienced sexual abuse at some point in their life. And around 92, 93% have experienced mental or uh, emotional abuse. And most of these men who have the have porn or sex addiction and have experienced this abuse have unresolved trauma Mm -hmm. and that that ultimately so you're looking at if you factor all these numbers together it's like 89 to 92 percent of men who have sex or porn addiction are dealing with unresolved trauma um so if you if you think about it it's a very different conversation well addiction and this is straight across the board whether it's cocaine or food or sex or gambling or whatever it is uh addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction Mm -hmm. um the same thing is happening in our mind from addiction to addiction now obviously if you're a 
Uh, if you're a cigarette addict, you're going to get lung cancer quicker than a gambling addict who's going to lose their kid's college fund uh, versus, you know, a heroin addict who will have certain physical issues happening. Now, while everybody's uh, addiction has those different side effects, what's happening in the brain with the pleasure centers and the dopamine and oxytocin and all that happy stuff, uh, that is... Uh, that's basically the same from addiction to addiction. Okay. Uh, but but in porn and sex addiction, you have much, much higher uh, instances of unresolved trauma. But that's almost always the case of addiction. For instance, with alcohol, uh, most studies I've seen say 65, 66% of people turn to alcohol because of unresolved trauma. So that's that's a little bit lower but but again, that's what the driving factor is. And to me, unresolved trauma creates the addiction. Not mm -hmm. knowing what to do with that trauma creates the addiction. Addiction is like a Band-Aid and the uh, unresolved trauma is like the festering wound under the Band-Aid. I can throw the Band-Aid on. I can get one of those fancy Band-Aids that Mac matches my skin tone exactly and you have no idea i'm wearing a band-aid mm -hmm. and it uh to the surface everything looks fine and i'm not letting you i'm not letting on i'm wearing a band-aid but the reality is whether i want to admit it or not that wound underneath nothing is happening good to mm -hmm. it it is festering it is getting worse and worse and the only way that you're ever going to not need a band-aid is to get into that wound and heal it and once you heal the wound, you'll still have a scar, but you won't need a Band-Aid on top of it to hide it from the world because you've dealt with that. And that's, that's kind of the way I look at, at uh, addiction. Um, to your question is, you know, the first red flag looking back, um, well, I mean, I, I guess it was the fact that I fell into that category as I was at a babysitter's house um, from being a very small child up till about the age of seven where there was some sexual abuse and a lot of mental and emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. um, and I can, I can look back now. I mean, this, this woman is, is, is dead now, but I can look back and recognize how ill she was. She had a wheelbarrow full of mental health issues. She should not have been in charge of taking care of children. Um, but she, uh, you know, she knew how to terrorize us. So we didn't tell our parents. She knew, uh, you know, she, she did a number on us. So that, you know, looking back now, well, there, there was a red flag, mm -hmm. um, even though I couldn't see it at the time. When I was 12 years old and was introduced to pornography for the first time by an older cousin who showed me some adult magazines, um, I can tell you that I was addicted within 15 seconds. I don't remember the I don't remember the names of the magazines. I'm I'm guessing it was Penthouse or Hustler, um, and um, you know I had seen naked people before on HBO, um, not you know having sex like was on was 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 on the pages of those magazines. But it was like some switch was flipped inside me. It was like some light shined from above. It was there there was just something else happening here where. Even though I was only 12, I felt like I had just discovered some kind of amazing secret that was going to help me through life. And when people still lean on the idea that pornography addiction isn't real, you know, I bring up the fact that the only other time I ever felt this way was about two years later when I was 14 and I got drunk at a cousin's wedding for the first time. 
And suddenly I, even at 14, I was better looking and smarter and funnier and a better dancer and more mm-hmm. people wanted to be around me. And I was just a better version of myself. And I felt like a better version of myself because I went around and snuck, you know, 15 glasses of champagne when no one was looking. And, and, and I felt that same thing. I felt that like, you know, message from above that light shining saying, this is why people do this. You feel mm-hmm. good now. You feel better than you usually do. This is a lot like the pornography when if you're feeling bad, this is a guaranteed pick me up. So from the age of 14 forward, um, I don't think until I entered recovery that there was a week where I probably went three times without looking at porn and or drinking. And there was, you know, there were times where I was doing it, you know, every day. Uh, If you look at my timeline, it doesn't matter whether I was in high school or college or early in my professional career or later or whether I had a long-term girlfriend or wasn't dating or, or was engaged or was married, uh, not, not, there, there isn't any kind of real variable in my life other than when stress and anxiety spiked a bit, I had my two crutches. I had my two go-tos because mm-hmm. no matter what was happening in my life, no, no matter where I was in my life, I could always count on these two things. And they were the only two things that I ever could count on to give me any relief. And, and that was even counting the, you know, bipolar medication I was on or even the fact that I had great friends. I've got a great family, but the number one priority in my life was making sure that I had access to these two substances that I knew would always make things better. Were there ever times where you thought, okay, if this happens, then I won't have to do this anymore. Or if, if I achieve this, or if I date this person, or if I find this sort of a relationship that I won't need this anymore. With the alcohol, um, I think I fooled myself to thinking that I didn't have a problem for a very long time. I think it was Mm -hmm. probably only my last five years of drinking. And I drank for 22 years. It was probably only my last five years where I thought that um, it was, it was a problem. Um, I had never heard the term porn addiction until I actually got into my first inpatient rehab, which was for alcoholism. And I, th- I thought I was only going to be there four weeks, like you see in the movies. And I ended up being there 10 weeks. Really? And yeah, my last several weeks, the guy who was my caseworker, I'd started to open up to him about my pornography use. And, and I was also, before I went there, I was starting to have certain memories coming back and, and terrors coming back because my, the business I owned, I owned a uh, magazine I, I created here in Maine. And it was starting to show massive uh, faults and, and, and I could see failure on the horizon. And I, it scared the hell out of me because I had employees, I had vendors, I had people who were expecting, uh, their ads to run and expecting magazines who had already paid for them. And I couldn't tell you in six or eight months if there was still going to be a magazine. So I started getting all this fear, like I'd never had before. And what happened was that was starting to trigger memories of when I was a kid, because that was the only other time that I was ever that scared was when I was at that babysitter's house. And because uh, ultimately my pornography use, I, I learned that like everybody, my alcohol was about numbing. My pornography use was about control. And really, 
And he says, think about this. You put pornography on in front of you, whether it's a magazine or a DVD or, or on your computer, you can see whatever you want to see and nobody there is ever going to say no. If I, if I want to watch, you know, three black men, three white women and three Spanish midgets go at it while Irish music is playing, I'm sure I can find that somewhere online. <laughs> and nobody on the screen is going to go, oh, my God, you're a perv. Or and nobody on the screen is going to go, this is weird or we're not comfortable doing this or take out the trash. Or you're not doing a good enough job at work. You know, you need to get here early and on time. Or, you know, or are you coming to your aunt's funeral? Or any anything that, you know, you hear from real life. When yeah. you are looking at porn, you are like He-Man or She-Ra. You are the master of the universe. And you are there basically to just treat people as objects as your loyal subjects and if these two people aren't getting you off today well i will find two other people who will or maybe three or maybe four because i rule this world and that's what you know when i gave up my control at that babysitter's house i don't remember ever you know actually doing this but i probably uh promised myself I would not give up control later in life because if you look I always ran my own companies um, I always control I, I was not a micromanager most people would tell you I was a good boss but I always ran my own companies I always made my own decisions I had a lot of problems ceding control to other people to determine my destiny well when this magazine starts falling apart after five years I'm losing control of things. I don't know how to control things. So my porn use starts ratcheting way up because that's my way of fooling myself into thinking that I, that I had control. Um, and that's, that's, that's for me, what pornography was about. That was for me where, where pornography hit and it, it didn't matter really what was on the screen. And that's one of the things I, I you know, try to drive home to people to understand the difference between, typical recreational use of pornography as you know largely an aid um, in masturbation versus somebody who's an addict with the addiction you know por porn addiction doesn't take place between the legs it takes place between the ears mm. and and that's what it really was for me was that i, I think that um, a lot of people who are not addicts with of, of any kind or have dealt with addicts of any kind, mistakenly believe that we are always trying to get our next big high. And how can I get higher? And how can I get higher? And mm -hmm. that is totally, that is totally not the case. I'm trying to get the first high. I'm just trying to get that first amazing, this is great high that I got in my life. And I, that's all the chase is, but because of how you fry your, uh, pleasure centers you need to use more you need to mm. and how your body adjusts to it you need more. it's it's like being the alcoholic where you know when i was 17 years old three beers would cause a buzz when i was 27 years old i was having to drink a bottle of wine to get that same buzz and then when i'm 37 years old at the end of my addiction i'm having to drink a bottle if not more of tequila and some nights i can't catch a buzz because there i didn't have enough money to buy the alcohol or I was just feeling too horrible or I passed out or whatever the case was, um, addiction escalates. 
Mm-hmm. Addiction escalates, and that's what happened. You know that that that's what perfectly happened with me. And you know, it's like I said, the pornography was the uh, illusion of control. That's why that's why it existed for me. Um, I recall in high school, one of the first times I recognized I was different than other people. Um, I was on the soccer team, and after a practice one day, uh, we all went to one of my friends' houses who lived nearby. And this was still the age of VHS tapes. And he popped one in the VCR and it was a porno movie. And everybody sat there making jokes like it was Mystery Science Theater 3000. And I'm sitting there very, very uncomfortable because this is not my relationship with, with pornography, watching in a group, making fun of it. My relationship with pornography in high school was that after school, if I didn't have anything to do, I either rode my bike or when I got my license, drove my car to the nearest uh, video store and rented some porno movies. And then I went to the uh, one convenience store that would sell beer to kids and I bought beer. And every day after school was porn and beer isolated by myself, just mm-hmm. trying to keep the what mess that was in my head from getting even messier. And then when I'm sitting there with my friends and they're making jokes about what we're watching and I'm super uncomfortable and I, I, I don't want to be there with them. And I want, you know, talk fight or flight. I wanted to fly. Um, that, that was another big red flag that mm. this is, this is, I'm not using this the way the rest of them are. Did you um, feel protective of it as in like, this is something that's maybe sacred or was it uh, like just more of a, Oh, why do they not feel the same way? Yeah, I think that's what it was where it's like, I, um, it's not that I wanted to, you know, ask them, excuse, excuse them from the room so I could do what I usually do when I watch porn. Uh, Because I'm sure all of them watched porn that way too. But it was the fact that I was so uncomfortable being in a group Mm. trying to not not desecrates i didn't i didn't hold porn as 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 anything sacred it was a tool i mean it was it was mm-hmm. just a tool um but it was it was it was just glaring that they could so comfortably uh treat it as a social occasion mm. and for me it was a solitary stay away from everybody else thing you know my, my drinking was the same way when i was in my early 20s you know i i I was in Portland, Maine at the time, and it had a great, you know, entertainment scene, a great bar scene. And I didn't go out on Friday nights because there was too many people and it was just too crowded and it was not fun. And, you know, I might go out to a bar on a Tuesday night um, when I could be left the hell alone. Otherwise, I would be home by myself drinking by myself or drinking with a roommate or, you know, if I had a girlfriend at the time or, or whatever, but, you know, very small group or by myself, I was very isolated. You know, that, that's a big red flag when you want to isolate to engage in your uh, addiction. Mm. Um, that, that's a big red, that's a big, uh, big red flag too. I can stop doing these before nine o'clock. <laughs> I appreciate I, I can tell you, I'm still, I'm still like, like shotgunning the caffeine. Cause you, you can take my porn, you can take my alcohol, but if you take my caffeine, <laughs> I will fight you. Trust. I already had my first round this morning. I'm, I'm excited for round two of it. I'm, I'm right there with you with caffeine. <laughs> I should, maybe I should, I don't know. But, um, I, when you put it in terms of, you know, the alcohol for numbing and the porn for control, that, 
to me made it click why they're the percentage of people who use it is so high because okay fine they don't want to say the word but how many people are looking for some way to exert some control because there are so many areas of their life where they don't have it. And I don't care who you are, where you're from and what your background is. I don't care how many times you go to church in a week. At some point, if you're struggling to feel control, it's going to manifest in some way, like whether it's porn or something else that it it, it all, it's all the same thing. Right. Well, I, uh, I, when my, my magazine came out, it came out in uh, 2009. So it was just after the housing crisis. Oh. And everybody told me I was a moron for starting a new business then, especially a print publication because the internet was going to kill print. Mm. Um, and I had reasons why they were wrong and, and some were made sense and some looking back don't. But if I was the toast of the town for a long time and about a year and a half after I started this magazine, I started an international film festival that what? took off that took off in my area. Well, it's, it's also avoidance of trying to you know be with myself. Um, oh, you have a, nice. nice. <laughs> I don't have an assistant here. Um, and, uh, and I got to get myself one of them. Um, and uh, most people don't like to work with me anymore, knowing how it ended. Um, but uh if you walk, well, if you walked into my, but if you walked into, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a horrible boss and oh. I can't manage money. Um, but I started a yeah. film festival because I was bored and I once, I like projects and because projects allow me to be somebody else, act like somebody else. I didn't have to, you know, the, the toughest thing in the world for me was at the end of the day, sitting on the couch after my wife went to bed, after the kids went to bed after you know nobody needed anything from magazine guy um Mm -hmm. you know and just sitting with myself was painful that's why i went to so much alcohol at that point that's why i went to so much pornography at that point um but had you walked into my office um i was also a city counselor as well because what what did the area need what did the area need more of me um (laughs) let me yeah I appreciate you reading my magazine. Let me set your tax rate. Um, and, uh, and if you ever want to get out of a ticket, remind the police officer that you handle their budget. And they just oh. look at you like you're the biggest asshole they've ever met. And they give you a warning. Um, <laughs> like, I hate myself for yeah, doing yeah, this. I hate but... you. I hate you. This is the way the world works. Um, but, but anyway, uh, <laughs> if you would have come, and I only, I only say this stuff because if you would have come into my office at any point at the magazine, you would have seen a ton of plaques and certificates and trophies and, and other things on the walls. And that was not to convince you, the visitor, that I was awesome. That was to convince myself that I was mm-hmm. awesome. So I could walk into my office every day, open the door, look around and go, see, here's proof you're not you're not a complete failure. Here's proof you're not a complete imposter. Here's proof that everybody loves you. Here's proof that you've got your stuff together. And then I could sit down, you know, around my accolades and and feel okay about myself because I wasn't okay and I didn't feel okay about myself, but I created this world of, I don't want to say enablers, but I created this world of people who they, they, they knew in my community that I was a complete alcoholic, you know, mm-hmm. I, but 
but guess what when you run one of the big forms of media they let a lot go when mm. you are one of the seven people who decides every budget in town they let a lot go when you run a film festival that for one weekend a year brings millions of dollars in tourism money to your your area they let things go and mm. that's you know kind of going back to that facebook joke where it's like can i get anybody to to give me an uh intervention here i think it's that you know we i had a symbiotic can somebody relationship. hold me accountable yeah yeah exactly and i i knew that you know it, it 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 couldn't it couldn't keep going this way and to really go back to your first question um <laughs> it was it it was in that that alcohol rehab where about six weeks in that my uh uh caseworker brought up the concept of pornography addiction that i had never heard of i knew i had an issue with it mm-hmm. but I had never heard of the idea of pornography addiction. And that was when I started meeting with a certified sex addiction therapist. And he helped me tap into some of those old memories. He helped me explain my history with pornography and, you know, why I used it and some of my attitudes towards sexuality, towards men, towards women. Um, And it was a, uh, it it was an eye opener. And, you know, I, I came home from there, did about a year of, really intense therapy. Um, and also being a journalist type, I read everything I could find about it, which at the, that point was very little. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, thankfully I'm the kind of geek who can sit there with the new England journal of medicine and read the studies oh. and, and be like, yeah, I know, you, you know, the guy who says, I just read a study and they're full of crap. I'm actually That's the you. guy who reads the study <laughs> and isn't full of crap. Um, but, but I know most people don't want to read that stuff. And that was after seeing how little there was out there for the average person and the fact that I was a decent communicator, um, I, I, I decided that, and something hit me. I mean, I don't know what it was, call it divine intervention or, you know, I, I, I don't know, cause I'm still not making, you know, very much money off of it. Um, and I don't know if I ever will, but I just feel this push to, to tell not just my story, but talk about pornography in general, talk about how things have changed, try to somehow normalize this um, for people, because, you know, I get so many people you know, who just, just want to talk to me one time who Mm. are, who are porn addicts or, uh, who, um, who needed, um, you know, just, just a, just a hand, just a little bit of help. And, uh, it's amazing sitting there and having a conversation like I'm having with you where, you know, while, while I am trained as a coach, I'm not a, uh, I'm not the kind of person who's going to try to make you stay with me forever. And there are some guys who all I am is a conduit between, uh, uh, doing nothing and going to real therapy. And I ease them into it and seeing somebody talk about this stuff for the first time, like I said, whether it's that, you know, uh, really graphic guy or that, you know, school marm, you know, uh, old, older woman, you know, it's, it's so powerful seeing them talk about it for the first time, getting them to talk about it for the first time. And I don't, I don't know if it's my calling. I don't know what, but it just, it, it feels like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Then I think it is. I think, you know, those things, right? Like, it's yeah, something- it, it, it is. I'll, I'll keep doing this for now. And if something else comes up, something else comes up, but um, for right now, I'm okay talking about this. I'm okay telling my story. I'm okay um, with uh, 
with sharing things. Um, not many people out there are, um, you know, from a absolutely uh, crass marketing promotion standpoint, that's great. I'm in a class of one, but mm -hmm. truthfully, I wish there was 500 other people like me out there. You know, I wish that I had to fight to be on your show and not that people are coming to me asking me to be on their shows. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that will be when, when I can fade into anonymity um, and I can't get any attention from anybody anymore because this is so normalized. There's, there's, there's the victory lap. That's, that's going to be huge. And I hope that does happen because agree. I, I was so confused when you were saying, you know, it's, it's not just my story. And I'm like, well, of course it's not, it, it, you know, like you shouldn't have to explain that this is a story that belongs to so many people. And you were saying, you know, hopefully people like you, I hope they're not all like you because this is something that spans so many socioeconomic statuses, oh, religions. There is no stereotypical porn addict. No, that no. was I, I, my first book. I tried to have two themes and my number one theme was there is no stereotypical porn addict. I have been in, you know, rehab. Uh, and I, I did go to a sex and porn rehab in Texas for about six weeks. Um, in 2015, once my, uh, once my therapist and I decided that I probably could use some really intense work. And I met people there who were doctors and lawyers. And for the first mm -hmm. time, I met women who were porn addicts, mm -hmm. people who were very well off financially, who were smarter than I could ever hope to be. And then I've been in 12 step rooms and I've interviewed and worked with people who don't have two dimes to, you know, push together, who probably wouldn't score 80 on an IQ test, who are every race, color, sexual orientation, age, mm -hmm. you know, you name it. There is no identifiable demographic of a porn addict. And I think that a lot of people still have this like... 19 year old guy with a lot of acne living in his mom's basement who was too scared to go to college and has never kissed a girl in real life who has a stack of you know dirty magazines this high that's who a porn addict is and 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 that's just not no. it i mean no. i'm sure that guy exists and he's part of the group but <laughs> but that's just not it mm -hmm. and and that's what people need to recognize is that if i a guy who owned two companies, was a politician, had a wife, had kids, um, really on the surface had it all together for so long, could be a porn addict anybody can. Mm -hmm. Can you, what, rewind just a little bit. What was the, when did it all like explode? Oh, when this did... is a fun story. You want stories. Here's your story. Oh, um, um, yeah. Um, it happened in uh, 2014. Um, so, so let me set, set it back here. 2013, my company is absolutely falling apart. Um, mm -hmm. I'm freaking out. I'm not. I make the uh, stupid, stupid decision that I am going to pull myself off of my bipolar meds that I've been taking for about a dozen years because I romanticized and remembered the mania of my early 20s. Um, mm -hmm. my, my normal, my normal way of being, uh, through my teens and early twenties was not depressed. My normal way of being was mania. Um, and I always felt that when I took the pills that somehow put a restrictor plate on me, 
I couldn't, I, I needed more than three hours of sleep a night all of a sudden. And I didn't have this, you know, place of creativity that I couldn't even explain where some of my ideas came from. And I just felt that, you know, like I said, the, the medicine was a restrictor plate. So 12 years, 13 years later here in, two, in 2013, my magazine's falling apart. I take myself off the pills. And that's because um, I think that if I can tap into that part of my brain I haven't been using, I'll be able to save the magazine. I, if you throw a lot of money at me, I look like a very good business person, but I'm not. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very good at, you know, smoke mirrors and, and you know, distraction. It's, it's gaslighting. I just, I, I can gaslight people into thinking I'm a good businessman. But when you take the money away and it gets real tough, I can't. And our revenues started dropping for a variety of reasons, uh, but our expenses kept going up and I didn't know what to do. So I pulled myself off the pills. Well, unfortunately, oh, once no. it got out of my system two, three weeks later, my drinking exploded. My porn use exploded. Um, in And I had that issue with escalation where it had to, it had to go, it had to go, it had to go. And um, long story short, what happened to me was that just looking at clips online wasn't doing it for me anymore. So I started to go into chat rooms and mm. talking with women in there. And I recognized uh, pretty quickly that women would not talk to, I mean, I, I know I'm no present now, but I really looked like hell back when I was 37. And in the midst of my addiction, um, I looked like I was probably 60 and my skin was blotchy. And, you know, because I'd take one shower a week. That's how much oh. I cared about what was going on. I, you know, my, I looked like I combed my hair with a pork chop and had, uh, <laughs> you know, haircut in months. And I, I mean, I, I looked bad. So, you know, I couldn't get women to stop and talk to me. So, I figured out a way, um, which is a long story you can read about in my first book, now available on Amazon. Yay! That um, Wait, what's it called? It's called. Uh, I don't even have a copy. Oh yeah, here it is. The addiction nobody will talk about. The addiction nobody will talk about. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm going to link to that as well. Um, good. Um, and uh, and 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 it's 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 cheap right now on there. They I don't know why they'd have like a 25% off, but go buy now. It's a great, great story. Um, oh. But anyway, um, I ended up, um, I ended up figuring out a way to bypass my webcam. And I found a video of a good looking 23, 24 year old guy who just looked like he was typing at his computer. So all of a sudden, because guess what? Women are just as shallow as men. I could get women to stop and talk to this good looking guy when I couldn't get them to stop and talk to the, you know, Quasimodo that I was becoming. You and catfished. I, yeah. Um, and, 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 just and never met yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I catfished. Uh, I catfished and I groomed because what I did was oh. I would this, and this goes back to my control. This is 100% my control issue. I would get a, uh, this was a system where it was, it was a lot like zoom. I don't know if you ever heard of chat roulette. Um, mm -mm. that wasn't the site I was on, but it was like you and I talking right now on zoom. If I don't want to keep talking to you, I can hit a button and somebody else's screen comes up or no. you don't want to talk to me. You hit a button. Somebody else's screen comes up. So tens of thousands of people are connected throughout the world. And once I started playing this character of this guy, um, women would stop and talk. Now they couldn't see me. So mm -hmm. I, I, I just typed my responses because that's what it looked like this guy was doing. While I was 
doing while I was talking to this woman, I would be on the side of my screen getting as much information about them as I could. And because I have a history as a journalist and a history as an investigative reporter, I'm very oh. good at I'm very good at asking questions. I can get you to reveal lots of stuff you don't even recognize you're revealing. Mm. And you know, I, I I've always wanted to learn how to do those cold readings, like as a psychic, because I think I'd be good at that. Um, because is that, I, a puppy? I, that is one of my many dogs. That okay. is that that is I know my that German town. shepherd who is uh, going to town, and his his leg is hitting my bed at the same time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and anyway, um, so I would, what I found very quickly was it wasn't just that I wanted to find a woman and say, hey, flash me. What I wanted was to find a woman who would say, no, I'm not going to flash you. And then I like to spend two hours trying to break her down and get her to flash me or do anything sexual, whatever it was. It was about control. So Let's say that, you know, I know your first name. Eventually, I get you to tell me basically where you're from or whatever, uh, or, or a couple other pieces of information. Um, I remember one time, and I actually talk about this in my book, um, that a woman, it's the opening of my book, a woman once mentioned, she was in her early to mid-20s, she once mentioned to me that her father was a teacher at I won't say, but a very prestigious university. And he had just won some award for some kind of chemical thing that I didn't even understand. But just that information, I was able to go find his biography. At the end of it, it mentioned his wife and kid, you know, where where he lived, where he was from, and his wife and kids' names. So I had all I got all I needed to do to start finding her. Mm-hmm. So with her, there was a bunch of uh there was a bunch of pictures of competitive horse jumping. So once I discovered that on her Facebook page, I could say something like, well, I can't talk to you too late tonight because uh, my sister's got a competitive horse jumping competition tomorrow. So I got to go support her because I love my sister. Oh, wait, Mm. you, you. So it's, it's, it's this, it's, 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 it's catfishing, but it's also grooming. And it's also this like, on steroids turbo beat the clock version and i would build this rapport and kind of you know and and fishing is a great idea because if you've been fishing when you catch somebody on the line you catch fish on the line you kind of reel in but you let it go and you reel in Mm -hmm. and it was and and i don't want this to sound like it was cool or i thought it was but it was like a uh it was like a art form to me of of the dance of figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the dance, if I could get this woman to do whatever it was I wanted, at breaking her down over two hours, I won. I would, and I, what I would do is I would take a screen grab of her in that state. Now, I didn't use these screen grabs for sex purposes or for pornography purposes because I knew how the internet worked if I wanted porn. Um, that was way too much work to get it. Um, mm-hmm. I would. I had this all of these pictures in a folder because they were my trophies. Despite the fact my entire world was falling apart for two or three hours in the middle of the night, I could exert my control. Now, 
this didn't come with masturbation. This quite often didn't come with nudity. Um, mm-hmm. If I couldn't, if I couldn't get her to do something, I would try to get her to do something else. Well, can you try on some outfits for me to see? You know, I think that painting on the wall would look better over there. Why don't you go move that so we can see? Just anything that I could play puppet master because there was so little control in my life. This was the way that it was almost a video game that I played it. And I was so drunk at the time, so sick at the time, um, that consequences and just the fact that I'm doing this really shady, scuzzy thing wasn't completely registering. You know, I look, I look now and I said, that was, that's totally cheating on my wife. Um, despite the fact, you know, there was nothing physical, that's totally cheating. It was not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, towards the end of 2013, I stopped and uh, I, don't, I don't know why I stopped. It just, I, I, I think, I think it actually do with the film festival is coming up and I now had to watch a million and one movies late at night because okay. most, most, most of my, most of my volunteers had jumped ship. They couldn't stand being around me, although I didn't really recognize that at the time, but I had to, I had to carry a lot more of the uh, work. Uh, so I, I stopped doing this catfishing stuff for, for several months. And uh, in March uh, early March 2014, uh, several um, unmarked police cars pull up in front of my house. And, you know, you don't have to be a fan of cop shows of the 70s to know what an unmarked police car looks like. And when it's March, which is still cold in Maine, and you see a bunch of guys get out in oh, navy yeah. blue golf jackets, you know that, you know, there's some bad stuff about to go down. I thought somebody had died or I thought that I, you know, I had done something with my businesses that was not legal and moving money. Cause I, I, I gave lots of loans from the film festival, which was doing well to the, uh, magazine, um, which wasn't doing as well. And I don't know if I did everything exactly perfectly, but so I thought that's what it was. And when I got to the door, um, I could see in the officer's hand who was in front his search warrant. And I made out enough words quick enough that they thought that I had underaged pornography. I was like, like, holy crap. And because it's the cops and because they have a search warrant, you let them in the house. You don't have a choice. Uh, And I let them in. So you didn't want to do the high speed chase? You didn't want to go down that route? I wasn't close enough to my car that I thought that I I could get to it. Uh, I I thought about asking them for a 15 second head start, but that only seems to be in Westerns. So, you know, being Mm -hmm. in the Northeast, I didn't think that would happen. I I thought they'd just beat me to death. Uh, So I decided again, that and I let them in and they they were very quick they got to the point they said that we believe in November of 2013 that you engaged an underage woman online and uh, we know that you have uh, photographic evidence of this I was like what and they laid it out for me I ended up without realizing it one of these women I spoke with was underage and Mm -hmm. I took a couple screen captures and in taking a couple screen captures, I manufactured child pornography. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, I did not yeah. know that counted as all that, right. Yeah. I, I didn't either. And, and I think maybe that's a good thing that we don't know that as a natural thing, mm-hmm. but, uh, that's true. but he, they had me, I didn't, I never tried to pretend that it, it wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't completely guilty. Cause it was like, here's what you did. Here's the proof. And it's like, geez, you're right. And, uh, but that was the wake up call I needed. That was the rock bottom. That was, you know, when I met my lawyer the next day, um, his first question was, is this a 
litigation game or is this a sentencing game? I said, it's a sentencing game. They've got me, you know, I didn't mean to do this, but I, that doesn't change it. I, I, right. and I, even, even now, seven years later or almost eight years since I actually did the crime, um, you know, I try to, I try not to minimize it. I try not to rationalize it despite the fact that I was in a, uh, altered mental state, um, I still know, and I think everybody knows that there are 16 and 17 year old females who look 26 and 27 and mm -hmm. vice versa. I think that deep down, I probably didn't care. If somebody looked like a kid when I was using this thing, I'd zap right past them. But you know what? If they had breasts and they were willing to play the game, cool. And these, these, these cops actually took my computer and searched all the other trophies that i had nothing else checked out you know as 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 illegal although every doing it to every woman was scummy whether she's you know whether you're 15 35 or 85 it's a scummy thing to do to somebody but those um, aren't illegal no exactly though well mm -hmm. th th those aren't illegal but but yeah. you know that just because your parents did it two years later than the other woman I talked to, I, I don't think that makes that much of a difference, but mm -hmm. I don't make the laws. And that is, that is something I, I'm just trying to say, I, not that, you know, she didn't count more. Obviously she was the woman, uh, she was the female of, of, uh, record for this, but I, I do think about all of the others, uh, mm -hmm. as well. I hope that none of them ended up, you know, having any kind of long lasting problem because of, uh, this one uh, or, or, you know, this one experience with me, but um, I don't blame the addiction. Um, and that's one of the things that I think makes me a little different than a lot of addicts um, is that uh, I knew that I had mental health issues and I pulled myself off of my meds. Um, and that, uh, that was my decision to try to save a, a company, mm -hmm. the company that couldn't be saved. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's, I, I made a horrible decision with my mental health and that that I don't remember the day I made the decision to stop taking the pills, but the day that happened, um, that was the beginning of the end for me. But you could also say it was uh, the end of the beginning because mm -hmm. here I am today. I don't, um, you know, have to run a business. I don't have to have 101 trophies behind me. Um, when you, when you finally see my Ted talk, you'll see what I mean. You're going to love the Ted talk after this long talk we have, cause you're just going to be, I get that. I get that. Um, this, this, this is, these are all the Easter eggs that you'll understand. Um, but, um, I now look at it and I'm still not the most spiritual person on earth, although I do have some better understanding, but I've just come to the conclusion that, um, I wasn't put on this earth to be a journalist or to be a magazine publisher. I wasn't put here to introduce great new filmmakers to the world or to be any kind of politician. I had to go through all of that to get here. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up in, 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 I ended up serving six months in jail for what I did. Um, that was where I wrote the first draft of my first book. Um, with, with, with miniature golf pencils in, I was in County jail. They don't give you pens. They don't give you real pencils with erasers. They give you the miniature golf pencils. So I went through, um, uh, about five composition notebooks and about 60 of those pencils in writing Ooh. my first draft of my book, but it was in meeting so many of those men in jail who had similar tales to the rich people in rehab 
who mm-hmm. had they they could tell you stories about their drug running or their robberies or you know even you know the domestic abuse they did against their wife and have no problem telling those stories they couldn't tell stories about their sex or porn and i was the first person they'd ever met they could talk about it with so i was like playing junior therapist in jail mm-hmm. and that was truly where i realized I'm here for something more important. I need to move in this direction. And when I got out of jail, I transcribed my first book. I, you know, continued with therapy, which is actually where I have to run off to when I'm done with you here. And because uh, I still see my therapist every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I'm here for a different reason. I think I know why I'm here now through all the good, bad, or indifferent of what happened to me. I am now a healthier person physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally than I ever have been. And that's because I did the hard work of recovery. And I always tell people, and this was the second big point of my first book, was that if I can get to the place that I got to, you can too. For 99.5% of my addiction, I never would have gone to places where I was interacting with real people. I never did that. I, that, that, I saw that as cheating, uh, but I reached a point, I escalated in my addiction so far that I reached a point where I completely lost myself. And I know there are people listening now who may be like, well, I look at porn, but I could never get to where that guy got to. Well, it took me, it took me 24 years to get to where I got to. Right. Um, and thank God that, you know, the police were watching. Thank God that they intervened because I don't know anything else that would have intervened that would have worked. But, um, you know, I, I'm a little bit uh, uh, allergic to the G word being God. So I just like to say the universe has put me exactly where I'm supposed to be. And while it took me, you know, over 40 years to get it. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing now. And, and, and that's talking to you on an early Friday morning. <laughs> and I appreciate it. Thank you.